a man who plays a monkey in the most natural manner possible, was just one of the reviews Black American actor Ira Aldridge received in Britain. Throughout his career, he was lambasted, mostly for his audacity in daring to be an actor at all. The reviewer for The Times stated that he was unlucky for the stage, and the shape of his lips made it utterly impossible for him to pronounce English in such a manner as to satisfy even the unfastidious ears of the gallery. Yet, despite the many condemnations, Aldridge went on to be a highly celebrated actor of his time period, touring across Europe, playing a wide variety of roles, including Shakespeare's Macbeth and King Lear, and even becoming one of the most highest paid actors in the world at the time. In 1828, in the age of slavery, Aldridge was invited to run the Coventry Theatre. But how? Born in 1807 and raised in New York City, Aldridge faced many difficulties working as an actor in America. For one, slavery was still legal and prevalent in the South. And while most Northern states had abolished slavery, they replaced it with a slew of discriminatory measures aimed at ensuring black subordination. As such, at age 17, Ira Aldridge left for England in 1824, never to return again, but instead to enjoy a career lasting over 40 years. Just a few months after arriving in Britain, Aldridge was cast in the role that would come to define him, Othello, at London's Royal Coburg Theatre, and became the first African-American actor to establish himself professionally in a foreign country. His debut at the Coburg Theatre in 1825 got him named as the celebrated American tragedian of colour. And at the ripe age of 18, years later, he would use the name the African Rocious on playbills. Though his blackness served as a hindrance in many ways, especially in New York City, his assumed African nationality served to impress the English audiences, since his acting was so polished and the average English attitude saw African synonymous with barbarian. Aldridge's extraordinary talent went beyond the stage. His Shakespearean track record caused European audiences to speculate whether Africans were truly inferior to Europeans after all. Abolitionists clung to Aldridge as an example to their cause, showcasing that a Negro man capable of understanding and interpreting Shakespeare proved for clear intellect that could be applied to the entire race. Ira Aldridge then served as a cultural phenomenon in the 1820s beyond just his incredible stage presence. Throughout his career, Aldridge redefined black roles and the type of actors who could play them, often transforming black characters from villains into heroes through his performances. From Shakespeare's time up until the early 19th century, Othello had traditionally been played by white actors in blackface, until Aldridge. And while his provincial performances as Othello were generally acclaimed, it was not until almost the end of his career and after a long and bitter struggle that he received on the London stage anything like acceptance in the role. This was due to London audiences having Shakespearean actors in abundance, including Othello. Despite Aldridge playing him as a black man, Aldridge's American accent and modification of lines proved as sacrilegious to London audiences, not to mention his embrace and kiss with the leading lady, left a sour taste in most Britain's mouths. His blackness was simply the cherry on top for most. Aldridge had the opposite reception across Eastern Europe, which was where most of his commemoration derived from. Performing in Russia was no problem due in part to the fact that they couldn't understand his English lines and thus didn't hold as much importance to the audiences in London. For the next 20 years, Aldridge played exclusively in the European provinces where he built a loyal following and handsome fortune. 
On the road for most of the year, performing throughout the British Isles, ready for the new scenery and a new challenge, Aldridge added to his Shakespearean repertoire by playing traditionally white roles such as Richard III, Shylock, Macbeth, and Hamlet starting in 1830. In 1852, he began his first major European tour, leaving standing ovations in his steed. Despite his international celebrations, however, he still struggled with regular engagement in London and bounced between touring Europe and London because of this. Receiving a Golden Order of Service or Knighthood of Saxony in 1858 and debuting his role as King Lear in 1859, he continued to earn worldwide fame and a considerable fortune. Aldridge spent the last six years of his life performing primarily in Russia and France, where he was described as one of the greatest tragedians of all time. Ira Aldridge died on tour in Poland in August of 1867. Aldridge's life and work was on the front lines, fighting for blackness to be accepted on the stage and in society, and one he did almost entirely alone, at a time of very few black actors, not to mention black American actors. In a time of eugenics, Aldridge's acting managed to extend the emotional repertoire of the black character, a feat that seemed almost impossible at the time. Continuing on from Aldridge's classical entertainment repertoire is theatre director and Talawa theatre artistic director, Michael Buffon, who reworks stage classics with black and global majority actors, which is better received by the modern London audiences. Aldridge's 1859 debut as King Lear is not a thing of the past, as Buffon reworked this classic nearly 160 years after Aldridge first hit the stage. Aldridge, in many ways, paved the way for today's guest and his theatre work, and his story will highlight how the industry is still changing to incorporate an inclusive and creative compass. Welcome to the How Did I Get Here podcast, brought to you by Black Cultural Archives, where we delve into the journeys behind the success stories of those in the arts and heritage sector to give you better insight into how to step into these careers. I'm your host, Bintiad, and in this episode, we explore the entertainment industry with Michael Buffong, Artistic Director of Talawa Theatre Company. Thank you for joining us today. So to start us off, can you please give our listeners the long and short of who you are, why you're here today, who is Michael Buffong? <laughs> um, well, I am Michael Buffong. I am the Artistic Director of Talawa Theatre Company. I'm here today to talk about my journey uh, within uh, theatre and within the industry. I am a father, brother, son, friend, Godfather, mm. mentor. Um, <laughs> I think that might be my list for the moment. Yeah, it's a pretty long list. I think it's it's a good start. <laughs> um, so you've had an incredible journey in theatre and screen more widely. Can you talk us through how you first got started, um, where you first started off, and how you got kind of started on this journey? Um, I'll talk about like when I was when I was little. Uh, like when my dad used to come home from work, mm. he used to have this newspaper and he'd give you the newspaper. And um, in the newspaper, they always had a list of what movies were on TV. Mm. Uh, and I never got to see any of these movies. So I'd read a little breakdown of what it was and kind of imagine what it was like. Cause I never, right. you know, got to see them. And then when I did get to see them, I also slightly felt, Oh God, I thought it'd be slightly different. <laughs> I thought it'd be maybe a bit better or more exciting. Mm. So I was always, that was quite fascinated. And then, uh, later on in my life, you know, you get to understand that these things are made. Yeah. You know, you can make these things. Um, when I was about 
17 or 18, um, I went to a youth theatre show at Stratford Theatre Royal. Mm. Um, and it was by Tundi Akoli. Um, and on stage at the time were a couple of names you probably re- recognise now were Roger Griffiths and mm-hmm. uh, Joe Martin, who are mm. now very successful actors, um, uh, as well as, uh, you know, about 18 other young people doing a play called The Time for Celebration by Tundi Akoli. Wow. It was about young people who were kind of... St- you know, dealing with unemployment and parents and mm. being young and being in love. And they sang and they danced and they looked like me. And they sounded like me. And they were on stage in Stratford. And I thought, I want to do that. Yeah. That's what I want to do. I want to be up there with them, with them lot, you know. Uh, so that's how it started. I got invited in. Um, and that's when you start to really realize, oh, so you, you make it. <laughs> you make shows and, you, you know, someone writes yeah. them and then you rehearse them and then you put mm. them on stage and hopefully, you know, People come and see it. So um, that led to, you know, uh, a few years in youth theatre, being invited on director's courses. Um, I started off acting to begin with. Mm. So uh, I have a uh, kind of first-hand insight of what actors need and actors' journeys, um, what they need to perform. But I really think mm, I realised my calling was directing. That's the bit where I really thought, yeah, I'm, I can mm. do this bit. I can do this bit really well. Um um and then it was about kind of trying to get work yeah you know that's the kind of the long and the short of it mm, and so when you went about trying to get work especially in the time that you were first coming up it was I'm assuming a predominantly white I mean it's still a predominantly white industry yeah. um, so there's no assumption needed there so how did you go about kind of securing opportunities and did you find that you were faced with obstacles that you maybe hadn't been prepared for um you know, I didn't even, I didn't think about it in that way back then. Mm. I really didn't. I, um, first of all, I was part of a, a, a cohort of directors. Obviously, there, there was the, a, a very obvious lack of black and yeah. Asian directors when I was first started, starting up, undoubtedly. Mm. Philip Headley, who was running the Stratford Theatre Royal, he got some money from the Arts Council. And there was a course run to um, encourage uh, people to think about moving into directing Philip came to me and said, I think you might like this. Uh, quite a few people were on that course at the time who've gone on into Ruba Singham, who's now running um, the kiln. She was wow. part of that first cohort back then. So there's obviously uh, uh, a need identified. Mm. So that was the first thing. So you kind of begin to learn your skills. And then it's about, I guess, getting work. Yeah. And that is, as anyone can tell you, it's hard. It's a, it's a real um, lot of knocking on doors. Mm. Lots of knocking on doors. Interestingly enough, uh, one of my first um, directing gigs was at Tallow Theatre Company. Oh. So, yeah, I went to Yvonne Brewster back then. I'd heard that she or the company was looking for a director for a play they had coming up. I said, you know, Yvonne, I, I'm directing now. She'd only known me as, you know, she'd known me as an actor. And uh, I told her and she said no. <laughs> so, so Yvonne did not give me a job. But I came back again when they had something else. Eventually I got in at Tallow. I also knew uh, a producer who was working in radio and was just moving over to telly. Yeah. And she kind of said, would you like to come and do a bit of TV work? So I've managed quite luckily to get into mm. to a bit of television, but it was difficult. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I think, I think back then, in terms of my own awareness 
of right this this is the industry I'm in and these are the forces that are around me I think I was more like I'm just keeping going yeah I just kept going just with that ahead. I just kept eyes ahead all the time mm. I think now there's a much more of a wow let's all talk about the inequality mm -hmm. that's happening in this industry yeah. and I think that's a great a great thing that calls everybody to account I mm. think it's a really positive um constructive movement mm. in understanding and, and recognizing what this industry is yeah definitely do you feel like to an extent your maybe not lack of awareness but lack of energy and attention that you paid to the fact that there was this huge inequality do you think that that might have benefited you in or not hindered you in the same way it would have had you been kind of starkly aware of this kind of massive massive disadvantage that you were at just by being a black man in this industry um possibly mm. possibly i mean i was aware of it my drive was i really more than anything else i wanted to learn my craft yeah i really i wanted to learn like the craft of directing mm. um and i think i took all kinds of opportunities wherever they came so mm -hmm. that I could practice and learn the craft of directing. And I think I back then, I, that's where I focused all my energy. Yes, I was aware. I was like, how come I didn't get that job? Mm. Or why didn't I? Or do you think I didn't get that job because, yeah. do you think? But then I, you know, I just power through to the next thing and like, what's the next gig I'm going to get? Mm. Um, yeah. And so you said earlier that you started off as an actor and then moved into directing, you realized that directing was more for you. What was the what was the trigger for you to realize that acting's cool, but directing's really where I want to put my time and energy? Uh, I was in a company called The Posse. Mm. The Posse was made up of eight actors who got really fed up with playing <laughs> drug dealers on TV mm. who had no other function than to just be this kind of <laughs> catalyst for the stories. They yeah. weren't great characters. So we formed um, a company to do work that we wanted to do. We used comedy and sketch base and wow. music to tell uh, uh, kind of bits, snippets of information about the industry as we saw it. Mm -hmm. We talked about casting. We talked about um, Shakespeare, who gets to do what kind of work within our, within yeah. our company. We did about four shows. Uh, we did very well. Um, so one day uh, I'm doing a posse show. It's called Armed and Dangerous. There's an actor called Victor Romero Evans, a brilliant actor, mm. really. Um, you know, I mean, they were all great actors in that company, I must admit. Uh, Victor, very charismatic actor, you know, gets on stage, stands center, does his stuff. And I remember being on stage one night with him and looking at Vic and going, he is wicked. Wow, Vic is really good, you know, but I think it'd be better if he stood over, if he stood over there. Mm. And I think it was at that moment I thought, oh, dear, I'm in the director. <laughs> I'm in the wrong place, you know. I, I can't be as good as Victor is if I'm thinking mm. he should be. A, Victor's thinking about the scene he's in. Yeah. And I think that was a real moment. I kind of thought, I think I should be on this side. Yeah. And I think once that happened, it was everything fell into place. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And what was what was working in black theatre like back then? What what was it like as an experience? Because it wasn't a particularly, it didn't get paid as much attention as it does now. It wasn't as much of a deemed a legitimate form of kind of theatre as it is now. Definitely wasn't getting the funding and, you know, the kind of monetary attention that it is now. So, like, what was that like? Actually, back then, or just a little bit before then, there were quite a few black theatre companies. Amazing. There were quite a few. Timber and Emoja and... You know, Tara, there was quite a mm. few. They, 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 their funding died away, but actually it's, there was quite a vibrant scene. That's there was great. the BTC, the Black Theatre Co-op, mm. you know, went to become Nitro. So there was quite a lot of, Amazing. quite a good few, you know, Black Theatre companies. 
Uh, I think we were probably talking about the same things we're talking now. Mm. I think there's, because of the shift, because, you know, <clears throat> the generation now are really calling stuff out, there's a difference. And then we didn't have social media to yeah, amplify everything, mm. you know. Today, someone does a play in Manchester. You know about it in London. Yeah. You know how well it's done because it's instant on your mm. phone or whatever device you're looking at it on. Then it was not as easy, certainly not as easy to mobilize groups anyway mm. or to get people talking. Yeah. So the social media aspect has, has really changed the game. But there was quite a few. And yes, they died out. Um, and I guess then, what was it like? Exciting. Mm. You know, it was when, when people made stuff, it was exciting. Yeah. That sounds like a really fun experience. I've seen so many things about kind of black theatre in the UK, kind of back in the day. And it just looks like it was a really organic and collaborative space to be in with like mm. just working with a bunch of friends, maybe not always friends, but <laughs> just a really a nice environment. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so speaking, we were speaking earlier about your West Indian background. How do you feel your background and your upbringing contributed to the journey that you've gone on to 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 walk? Um, I guess coming from a very oral tradition, mm. you know, we tell we tell stories at home. You know, there's a lot of play, so I think that's definitely in the mix. I'm not sure if my parents ever saw going into theatre as a kind of legitimate career move <laughs> to be quite honest I think it took a long time for them to kind of go oh okay I see that's what he's doing and he's fine mm. um but yeah I think culturally yeah there, there's a we come from a storytelling expressive you know kind of vibrant community that's yeah. got stuff to say mm -hmm. and like to say it Mm. Do you feel like in kind of harvesting or harnessing that oral tradition that we have across the African diaspora, you've been able to um, to to use that in your work as a director? Yeah, I, th I think it almost subconsciously, subliminally is there. All those influences have been mm. called on constantly. I, I don't think I, I'm not aware of that. I consciously go, you know, I'm doing this kind of work from this influence yeah. from, you know, from my West Indian heritage or first back <laughs> from an African heritage. Mm. Um, but I'm very aware that it's always there. Right. And so in your work at, well, first of all, tell us a little bit about Talawa Theatre Company, and mm. then I'll ask you a few more questions about your amazing work there. Uh, Talawa Theatre Company set up in 1986 uh, by three, four women. So mm. Mona Hammond, Yvonne Brewster, Carmen Monroe, and Inigo Espadrille, the, they realized that it was very difficult for black act actors to get lead parts, mm. especially in the classics, really difficult. So uh, I think someone had alerted Yvonne to the fact that there was some money, government money available. She should apply for it. She thought, I'm going to set up a, a black theater company express, explicitly to, to do lead parts for, for black actors and that was the start of it and also to tell you know stories from our pov i think the first production was actually um black jacobins which is mm. the story of the haitian revolution uh then followed by the classics of lear and um uh importance of being earnest mm. you know because there's also this thought that black yeah. actors couldn't do shakespeare yeah or couldn't handle the classics or comedy and it was just like smashed all of that <laughs> you know but then of course there are actors who want to 
yeah. who would love to have a go at playing King Lear mm. or doing Arthur Miller, which, you know, Talawa, um did. And now as we move on, I think we're moving into a stage where we're, t- we're more and more telling our own stories, how we want to tell really? them. That's incredible. I was really um, struck by the kind of mix between um, classical theatre that Talawa puts on, but also African um, descendant theater. So in your, as in your, you've been artistic director since 2012, right? Yeah. So how has that process been for you in terms of bringing your artistic vision to life? And how do you feel that your blackness has influenced, um, how you tell specifically classical stories, which were Mm. obviously white creations and predominantly, um, were brought to life by white actors, white Mm. directors, white, just white hands in general. How have you, um, kind of added your own touch to it? Okay, uh, let's look at um, All My Sons, mm. Arthur Miller's play, traditionally produced uh, uh, yeah, produced with a white cast. We've done it with a black cast, and it's a community. And our twist on it is like you think in the 40s, being a black businessman and the pressure that must be in, mm. you know, first of all, you've got the all the props from the community, but then there's a lot to live up to. And what happens if there's a lie that's holding all of that up mm. and how that feels. I mean, at the end, it's got our lead character being taken away by the police. And I remember Don Warrington saying in the rehearsal, oh my God, can you imagine the shame of that as a black man yeah. who's perceived to have done so well mm-hmm. in the neighborhood, being led away by the police because his business, which he's doing brilliantly well, mm. was actually funded, you know, by this, um, uh, what's, what's the word for it? This kind of lie this really awful deceit at the heart of it so I think when you get a black production there are layers that go on that are just added textually it's Mm. not there's no change to the script yeah um if you look at the our version of Lear um Mm. my approach to King Lear is like I think black people didn't arrive in England with the wind rush Black people have been here for centuries. Mm-hmm. There could have been a quite easily have been a black king here before mm-hmm. we had the mechanisms of racism that we understand yeah. and play out today. It was whoever's the strongest, mm-hmm. that's the king. Winner takes all. Winner takes all. Mm. And that's that's the version I was going with. Um, and to understand it, I mean, it's called King Lee, and I, in my, on my script, had always written like, you know, the black king of England. Mm. And then people say, if there was a black king of England, what happened to him? Mm. And then if you watch our King Lear, this is what happened to him. Yeah. As dementias kind of start mm. to kick in, he starts to make rash decisions. And because he's the king, no one can argue with him. Yeah. And if you look at the casting, you'll see the bloodline also starts to kind of... Fade out. Yeah. 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 As the daughters wow. um, marry, you know, a, a man who isn't black, mm. you know. or And also it's a mixed court because one of the, uh, you know, I think it's Kent in there. He has a black mistress and a black wife. Mm. And so uh, that's also in the mix. And if Amazing. you look at the how it's done, it's not it's not um, upfront, but that's mm. exactly what it is. So by the time you get to the death of that family, you understand this is quite possibly a route that could have happened to that bloodline. Now wow. that's a way of casting that's it's right there it's in your face mm. and that's because I that's how I look at it <laughs> from that perspective wow that's incredible because I've seen many renditions of classical plays with black leads mm-hmm. um but I'm yet to see many that acknowledge whether it's subtextually or or explicitly mm-hmm. the fact that the lead is black mm-hmm. it's generally just here's a Shakespearean play 
the lead is black, but mm. no <laughs> adaptations else. have been made whatsoever. No one else in the play is black. There's no acknowledgement of the fact. It's just, he, he's just black, but we don't talk about it. Have a look. And, and the women. And I mean, we did it as well in like the costumes mm. reflect, you know, a, a, a heritage that's not from this island. That's you know, so it's worth having a look at. Mm. I think it's important because when you're, it's it's that thing of inclusivity, inclusivity and diversity. Like diversity in theatre is obviously increasing, um, well, but the inclusivity part is acknowledging those differences and yes. those kind of um, discrepancies between culture that mm. aren't necessarily evoked in the text, like explicitly but do need to be acknowledged in whether it's visually or just kind of subconsciously absolutely and it's incredible that you're doing that absolutely that's yeah. so cool yeah yeah and so in your when you first started off as artistic director of Talawa theater company what was the collaborative process like for you especially considering that you're bringing these plays to life in a in a way that's not um in line with the traditional the tradition of english theater mm-hmm. what was that process like for you um i think when i first got to Talawa. It, it's it's still quite a bit of a struggle, or mm-hmm. it was back then, because you know, just newly coming into post, and some of the, like some of the plays I wanted to do, venues were not that interested in. Mm. You know, they're like, no, not for us. So it right. took a bit of time. I think it really kicked off maybe about seven or eight months, and someone said, "Why don't you Why don't you do uh, Moon and Rainbow Shore?" Mm. So Moon and Rainbow Shore by Errol John, set in Trinidad. Uh, it, it's a brilliant story of of, yeah, of just this local community. I'd done it at the National Theatre, um, and I thought, okay, let's remount it because Tala was essentially a touring company. Right. Um, and the National Theatre had also at the time said, yeah, we'll be happy to do a co-production. Mm-hmm. And I think that's suddenly when people became interested okay. uh, in Talawa, uh, you know, coming on board and saying, okay, we'll we'll have your play. Mm. Um, there have been other occasions. I I remember one of the plays we did earlier on uh, was called God's Property by Arinze, mm. Arinze Kenny, who's now, you know, Lure. Bob Marley and Misty. <laughs> and, and so we'd done one of his first plays, but mm. it was really hard to get people to co-produce. Really? People like, mm, yeah, and they ummed and they ahed until we did it at Soho and mm. suddenly everyone's like, oh, oh, we didn't know it was that. Like, <laughs> yeah, that that's what we're talking about. Mm. So it, ta- it takes a bit of time, mm. you know, um, reputationally, I guess. And then people kind of go, oh, tell her, all right, well, what have you got? Mm. And even then, it's, you know, it's it's not always, people might like the, the play you're suggesting, but it's not mm. quite right for them at the time. Right. So there's a lot of negotiation mm. to do. What do you think the, f- the first... Um what what was their apprehension like? What what do you think the root of their apprehension was at the time, for not wanting to collaborate or not wanting to put on these plays? I think possibly they're like, I don't know if we're going to sell it. I don't know if our audience are going to come and see this right. black work. Right, basically. Right, okay. you know. So uh, I think there's that. Mm. I think there's that. I think there's this terrible. We don't know if our audience are going to come and see black work, but they do. They love it. They do. Of course, they <laughs> eat do. it up. <laughs> of, of course, you know, um, and it's a. Uh, Having come from the Posse, which was very successful and did really well, mm. you know, um, on tour, and then take, getting a job at Talawa to find that actually I thought the landscape had changed, but actually yeah. it wasn't where I thought it was. And a lot of work still had to be done mm. with some um, national, you know, regional companies yeah. in A, understanding how to market shows that we're producing, mm-hmm. where to do uh, marketing, how to make their audiences uh, feel welcome in their spaces, because that's another mm. major thing, you know. How do we feel going across these yeah. thresholds? Do we feel comfortable? Do mm. we feel welcomed? 
So all those kind of things, also as well as being looked at now, were also being looked at then. Mm. So how have you gone about kind of maintaining that artistic integrity that you bring to your plays when having to collaborate with um, other theatre companies or organisations that might not have the same vision of you or where your visions might be in direct conflict? Um, I've got to be say, I've got to be honest, I think reasonably I've been all right. Okay, I think that, that, you know, they're kind of going right with this Michael and Tyler, well, we know what they're doing. Mm. Um, and I think it's been okay. I think it would be difficult if we were really at odds. Yeah. I don't think we would have probably got off the ground. So I think on some level that, you know, we must have agreed mm. to begin the, the collaboration. Um, I think everything at some point is going to be a compromise. Yeah. You know, um, so those things are always going to happen. Mm. And it's about how you negotiate. But I think as long as one holds into one's integrity, uh, you know, and keep keep true to the things that got this collaboration started, it should mm. should generally work out in the end. Mm. Okay, compromise. <laughs> compromise in an art, in a collaboration is. I know. I met someone said who said once they said they never have, never compromise. It's, uh, it's interesting. I think it's unrealistic sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I think if, if it's a collaboration, you're gonna. You're going to have to compromise at some Somewhere. Point. Yeah. So, and sometimes it's not necessarily a bad thing. Mm. Sometimes, you know, not having the, the you know, three hanging things that you want yeah. because we can only afford two. Mm. Actually, two looks good. Mm. Yeah. Have you found that you've had experiences where um, you might have been kind of like stuck on this vision of how you wanted things, but you had to compromise? And in the end, you found that that kind of added perspective really benefited the end product absolutely yeah absolutely i've done productions where we've done the the, the model box and it's great and you've got into production and they said actually we can't make that mm. like, why because oh, we don't have the budget so the thing you thought you were going to get is going to have to be a version of yeah but sometimes you know that bit of pressure makes your diamond so long as it's not completely compromised as mm. long as it's not com- like nothing like yeah, what you started off with which would be a different story. Yeah. But I think some some compromise, I'm not advocating all compromise, but, <laughs> you know, where, where it cannot be helped, mm. embrace it and see what it delivers. Welcome it, yeah. <laughs> and so you said that when you moved from Posse to Talawa, <coughs> you were kind of shocked at how little or how little progress had been made in the industry. Mm-hmm. What were the main obstacles that were facing the industry then? And do you think that they have persisted till today? I think they're, they're, like I said, I think it's this thing about black work not yeah. selling and black, you know, audiences not coming to black mm. work. I think that is that. Um, I think there has been a change recently, certainly within the last couple of years, but I think it's kind of gone back and forth. Yeah. I think post pandemic, post BLM and George Floyd, I think it's been like, oh, yeah, yeah. And then suddenly it's all now, econ- you know, and we're in a kind of economic crisis and yeah. buildings are worried about how they heat and they may be feeling like, oh, gosh, we've got to revert yeah. to what we know or what mm. we think our audience audiences will come What's to. What's going to bring in the money? Is, I personally think is always the wrong way to go. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got to, this is the time for change. So mm. change is the only thing that's going to get you out of it. Mm. You know. And have you found that with the, with the kind of apprehension to mm-hmm. give the mic to black work and to put it kind of at the forefront, is that, is that coming from a place of black work isn't deemed as proper as kind of, as theatre as theatre does that make sense yeah 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 I think there's a bit of that and I, mm. I genuinely think they just don't think that their audiences will will like it mm. which makes me think 
who's making the decision for your audience? Yeah. Does that mean you think that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, unless they're kind of going, no, it's the data, the data reveals. I, I don't know. I, but I do think it's not a very strong argument. Yeah, I think you it's know, quite a weak one, if anything. Very weak one, you know. Mm. And in the experience of acting and directing, so you've done both, what do you think the obstacles that face black that black actors are facing specifically um, are today? Or were back then when you were acting as well? Well, back then it was just about not getting the parts. Yeah. You know, not getting parts that were really kind of sophisticated mm-hmm. and gave you stuff to do. And I think there's... There's a massive game change now. Mm. You know, there is, I think, and uh, our actors that have left here and gone to the States and done amazing They're work. They're doing amazing. I th- so I think all of that has changed, yeah. to be quite honest. I, I think if someone was offered a part, you know, as the drug dealer, they probably wouldn't be, I yeah. hope anyway. Now, you just wouldn't bother with it, mm. you know. Or you'd kind of go, why, you know, yes, he's a drug dealer, but there must be more to the character than mm. this. So if you could do all that for us, then we then can have Then consider it, yeah. Absolutely. That's great too. It's true that I mean, you know, you've done well when you have Black Americans sweating about the, about the black inflow. English. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. No one could have seen that coming as like a whole other kind of discourse in the Black yeah. relational debate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Amazing. And so, with the um, with your work as like an artistic director and that side of things, what are the obstacles that you face from a business perspective? Because I suppose when we think about artistic direction. Um, we tend to focus on the creative side of it, but there is there it's an all, all encapsulating role, and there's a lot of kind of limbs to what you do. So, can you talk us through a bit like what your responsibilities are and the obstacles that come with those as well? Yeah, um, I think well, first and foremost is the kind of creative direction of the company and the kind of work it's making, the kind of artists it's working with, mm. where that work is going, uh, who can we work with. Um, one of the major things that's come up recently is whether the people we're working with do their values and, you know, working ethos align with ours because mm. that's very important for us now going forward. I think there's also the the business side of it, mm. you know, as a publicly funded organisation, we have to be uh, very sure of the money we're spending, where we're spending it. We have, it has to be accounted for. Mm. We also... Um, specifically as a charity are constantly looking you know out for other streams of of revenue fundraising is a major Mm. major uh topic issue for us as a theater company and where to go to find those additional um streams Mm. of income as it were you know um so those are the things that we're, we're constantly, well, from my, from my seat as the artistic director looking at, there's also yeah. an executive director who also holds a lot of the business mm. side of the, of the company. Um, yeah. So one of the, that, that, those would be the, the main things, mm. I think. And have you found that in this cost of living crisis where people's wallets are much tighter and so, you know, spending on things like going to see the theater mm. and, those luxuries that we didn't once consider luxuries um have you found that that's affected the company at all or just your role generally i think it's definitely affected the industry as a whole yeah because people kind of work out where they're going to spend their money especially as theater seems to be so expensive it's something that we're really aware of and we're we're approaching our our uh productions with ticket prices and accessibility mm. in mind, mm-hmm. very much on about you know about getting our community into see our work. So it's yeah. something we're very acutely aware of, mm. um, and are working to make sure that we we have a pricing system that allows access to the work Amazing. and doesn't exclude 
you know, because that's another thing. You kind of go, how much is it to go and see that show? Mm. Well, that's an instant barrier. Yeah, And part exactly. of our company's, you know, remit is to kind of take down some of these barriers, mm. financial barriers, barriers into the industry and mm. stuff. Like, how do I get into being a writer, actor, director, lighting, yeah. sound design, costume mm. design, set design? What are the roots in, you know? And I think hopefully at Talawa, we are trying to illuminate, mm. as it were, some of the pathways into those industries. Amazing. So in terms of those pathways into the industries, are there workshops or are there, what are the um, kind of mechanisms that you've mm. put in place for people who are looking to get into that stuff? Yeah. So at Talawood, we've got, for instance, we've got a kind of a pipeline scenario. So for instance, from a writing point of view, we've got a free script reading service. So you can mm. send your script into Talawood when the window's open. Um, it gets read by readers, a re reports written. Wow. Uh if one of our readers goes, actually, we should take a closer look at this, it gets a second read. Um, and then it gets passed up to our new work producers who mm. start thinking about, well, how can we help this? Mm. We have a new writers festival called Talawa First. Wow. Uh, Talawa First effectively is a showcase mm. of new work that people are invited to come along and look. So venues come along, the Royal Court or Soho or Stratford or you know anyone uh, and to, to view some of this work sometimes this work gets picked up mm. um, and then co-productions are possible so that could be the from the writers POV directors we bring in new directors and newish directors to mm. do the, the readings direct the readings if those pieces go on those directors go on with the piece um, of course mm. acting wise <clears throat> There's a lot of work for actors who are mm. in these Talawa first scenarios. We've also got our productions. So for yeah. this year we're doing recognition. Mm. So recognition's about to happen, uh, opens on 5th of June, Amazing. which is the story of Samuel Coleridge Taylor, who's a wow. classical composer, composer, yeah. you know, uh, born, uh, bred in, uh, bred, born and bred, I was going to say, in Croydon, <laughs> actually, uh, he was born in Holborn, but he grew up in Croydon. Um, and that's his story and the story of a young woman called Song who studied music at a conservatoire and how she feels being in this very white space mm. until she discovers Coleridge Taylor, his journey. So there's wow. actors getting work that way, directors, uh, Rachel who's directing, I think this might be her first, uh, her by herself directing gig. Wow. Cassie Cano, she's doing the music. I mean, it's it's a... Amazing. Yeah, it's a great um, opportunity for lots of creatives. Mm. So that, so there's that as well. Then we have Tipped, which is the Young People's Program, which is a, over a, over four weeks where you make a new piece of work. Ten wow. new theatre makers, a couple of new writers, mm. relatively new director, make a piece of work. Over a month, we have uh, a writer's group, mm. which meets on a Wednesday every other week wow. and start doing stuff. And I think the writer's <laughs> group is presenting this year at Talawa First. Really? So there's a lot of kind of ways into yeah. the company. It sounds like Talawa Theatre Company is very open and yes. kind of doesn't have its walls very high, um, which I think is important, especially when we're looking at um, black actors and just black theatre heads mm -hmm. entry into the industry. It's always been really kind of convoluted and difficult um, and there's always been barriers and slowly those barriers are falling down. But what do you think, why do you think it's important that Talawa and theatre companies like it are so accessible to the public? Well, I think it's important that th this industry is demystified. I think it's important if you want your audience or your community to engage with you, you, mm. you are seen to be open and there, there are ways in. 
I think it's very important because otherwise it does become a mystery. Right. You know, I think theater has, um, has a, uh, what's the word, um, a reputation mm. of being not for me or, yeah. you know, only for those kind of people, not mm -hmm. for us, you know, and I think it's, it's the mission of companies like Talawa to kind of go, it's for all of us yeah. and it's great fun to be had and we mm. can tell great stories. And theater is a, is a fantastic medium. It's a really immediate, mm -hmm. visceral, you know, medium to work in and to, and to witness. Mm. And in your experience, so you've now you've done you've done theater, you've acted, you've directed um, plays, and you've also directed television. You've directed episodes of EastEnders, which I know people will love, Holby City, so on and so forth. What was the first of all? How did you get into? How did you kind of make that lateral move into TV, television directing? Mm -hmm. And what were the differences that you experienced going into that medium versus theatre? Um, I, uh, I was working with a, a producer who did radio and mm. they were moving into to, to EastEnders, okay. literally. And they said, would you like to... <laughs> Want to direct EastEnders? <laughs> yeah. Which was bizarre because I'd written so many times to the BBC and, you know, not gone to various mm. film, you know, directing courses. And then suddenly she just kind of went, you want to come in? Wow. It's not what you know, it's who you know. <laughs> Which was bizarre considering the, 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 you know, the countless letters and stuff. Yeah. Um, so I, 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 that's how I started working in there. And it was great fun. And it's, um, it's, it's good, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but then I think being at Tallow just gives me, probably gives me more autonomy. Yeah. And also one of the great things, and I, which I hadn't quite prepared for, uh, when I got the job at Tallow as the artistic director, was was being able to enable so many more artists. Right. I think that was yeah. the thing when you suddenly think, oh my gosh, so we could do Tallow first and mm. give these writers this platform and give those directors the gig to direct the readings. And yeah. then we got tipped. And so all of that is... Yeah. It's kind of an ecosystem that you're building, isn't it? Completely. That's Completely. incredible. Yeah. And so in your experience in television, did you find that a lot of the same obstacles and barriers that existed in the theatre industry translated into screen and television? Um, back then, I would say so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, there weren't a lot of black directors right. around then. I think there's more now. Mm -hmm. I think, that, I think, like I said, the industry is definitely changing. Um and if and then if it's not happening there, if directors are, you know, they're going to the states and doing stuff. Yeah, and they can now. And they can. <laughs> and they can. Why do you think it is that um, black British actors are so well received in the UK? Because we speak about it all the time, and a lot of people say that they go to the UK because they're not getting their flowers here. Which oh, I to think, the US, do you mean? Yeah, to the yeah, sorry, to the US. Um, that they're not getting their flowers here, or that you know the UK the industry just doesn't have the money that the US industry does have. But why do you think that they've been received so warmly over there? I think, I don't know, this might be a terrible thing to say and upset a lot of Americans. I think it's probably to do with the training mm. that you get over here yeah. as an actor. Mm -hmm. I think, especially if you come from a theatre background. Yeah. I think the training is like incredible. I think that preparation mm -hmm. gives you a bucket load of skills yeah. that are so useful and transferable for television. Mm. You know, um, I think about David Harewood, mm. you know, and I watch David on screen. I'm like, yeah, yeah. that's, that's a theater background training. Yes. Yeah. Because a lot and of them do go through theater before yes. they start into TV, whereas I feel like in yeah. the States, sometimes they just start straight on screen, isn't exactly. it? 
Okay, yeah. I don't think they'd like hearing that, but that was no, what I, I thought think, as well. I don't think that's going to go down very well. <laughs> I just well, wanted probably. confirmation from an artistic director because yeah. that was my yeah. thought as well. Yeah. So looking back, kind of focusing back on the UK industry, what changes would you like to see in the years coming specifically for um, black actors, black people who are behind the scenes in the creative process, um, people who are in the higher, kind of at your level and higher up in the um, theatre industry? What changes do you think need to come? Yeah, um, I think m definitely more behind the scenes, mm -hmm. more black producers, definitely, mm. you know, in in um, in theatre and in television mm. and film, more black producers to get those story, get the, you know, the finances and the backing for these stories to be told. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I'm really looking forward to more black work in town mm. in the West End. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm really that's that's another big uh, kind of barrier thing that has to be kind of pushed through. Definitely, so that we can get our work on in that marketplace as well yeah. of our own volition. Mm. Um, I think that's that's the main ones, um, and also just like I said earlier on, you know, black artists working in sound, in LX, mm. in in set design, mm. and that's all transferable, you know, on stage and on screen. Yeah, which is something I'd like I'd like to see much mm. more of, which is great. And of course, you know, uh, black leadership in the higher kind of levels of theater mm. you know, more eds yeah um and chairs of boards mm. you know that that kind of essentially uh look after and run these theater spaces right. and how i suppose from a from a um practical practical point of view like we you've outlined the steps of how people can get into those but what do you think the barriers keeping them from actually from there being more black producers and more black eds more black ap's what are the obstacles on a more social level at the moment um it could be knowing mm. where to find these access points mm -hmm. it could be a, a big one it's about um i guess um Oh yeah, I'm not sure. Well, other you know, yeah, it's fi it's finding the inroads. Mm -hmm. It's knowing who to talk to. Yeah, you know, finding those access points. I think those those are the main things. Mm. Um, and our networks, expanding yeah. our networks. Mm. You know, and understanding how they work. Um, yeah. So what is then? The I think when we talk about networking, it seems like really scary and like this. It just seems really scary to a yeah. lot of people. Um, at the end of the day, it's kind of just having conversations with yeah. people who do things you're interested in. But what do you think the importance of networking is, especially for black, younger black people starting off in this industry? Mm -hmm. I, I think networks are a kind of vital part mm. of, of work, the yeah. work uh, environment. You're going to need to talk to people who can talk to people. Yeah. Um, and it's not necessarily a scary thing. It can be quite social mm. you know um and i think because a lot of it can be also about relationships yeah you know rather than thinking about them as oh my god this scary thing called networking it could just be relationships mm. or, um, and they're very good for connecting people which i find quite interesting in this age of facebook and insta and twitter mm. that kind of lots of people are connected so there's ways of reaching people yeah. or or if you need to find get an intro to someone who do you know who can intro you to someone yeah. rather than just cold calling mm. might be you know these are all yeah just the ways of getting relationships going right and do you feel like you've maintained like the relationships that you formed at the beginning of your career mm -hmm. have they have you maintained a few of them throughout your career have they served you throughout your career 
I think so. Yeah. I think so. I think so. I think I've hopefully managed to to uh, maintain all those relationships. Mm. Um, maybe not on a daily basis, <laughs> but that's but, asking for a lot. <laughs> but, but definitely on a professional mm-hmm. uh, level. You know, I'm. There are loads of people I feel very confident mm-hmm. and happy to you know pick up the phone to yeah. or ask questions or favors or mm. information. Definitely, mm. definitely. Um, and I guess that comes with being around for a while and and also helping other people. Yeah. Because that's the other thing. It's also being able to say, oh, you need that? I think I might be able to put you Can in contact you with yeah. so-and-so or have you spoken to so-and-so? Mm. Let me do an email intro. So that's also, yes. So the answer to your question is yes. <laughs> I think I have. Hopefully. We'll let the listeners or the people you we'll know let, listening. We'll <laughs> you, you haven't we get a message like I haven't heard for you in three years. years. <laughs> yeah. And so when it comes to networking, I um I read something recently that was saying that people focus too much on networking vertically when they should be networking laterally and kind mm-hmm. of looking to their sides and seeing who they're coming up with and who's who's kind of trying to go into the same industry as them. And it sounds like in your background, that's that's kind of where your networking was and that you were in posse and you were among equals. You were all kind of doing the same thing at the same level. And I imagine you've kind of gone off to do different things, but you've been able to maintain those relationships. Um, so do you think that that's where people should focus more of their energy? I think absolutely. Yeah. I love the idea of doing it laterally. Mm. That makes absolute sense. I watch kind of a, a new generation now and I watch them all mm. rising and say, you you are your own network, Yeah, you know, and you're before you know it you're the people everyone else is going, oh, I want to be like them, mm. which is w- what's happening all around. You know, I look at some of the people now running buildings or, you know, yeah. and I'm like, oh, my God, wasn't they were my assistant <laughs> not too long ago. And now they're doing this. So, you know, they were Amazing. my assistant on a particular production. Yeah. And now they're. <sighs> so all of that is is great. And yes, laterally. Absolutely. And the thing about networking, one of the things that someone told me, um, you know, it might be some kind of social event is like not to try and seal the deal. Mm. You know, it's not about, oh, you've got to get something out of this interaction. No. Yeah. You know, it's a much more gradual. someone. Yeah. It's about the relationship. Mm. Mm. And kind of prioritizing <coughs> relationships in your in your experience so you've been named one of the most influential directors of classical plays over the two decades and one of creators creative reviews 50 creative leaders so you've reached great heights um especially considering your background and <coughs> and kind of your non-classical route i suppose um how has those how have those um accolades and affirmations impacted the way that you view your work and the way that you think um, incoming generations will be able to thrive in this industry? Um, well, firstly, uh, I'm not sure how <laughs> I view those accolades in terms of how I do my work. I do kind of just get up and every every production is just like, it's right, it's a new one. Yeah, it's, I think it would be quite hard to kind of go, well, here I am, <laughs> about to do this new production. I am the most, you know, one of the most influential, it just wasn't <laughs> work. Um, so I kind of, that's lovely. Yeah. But I kind of leave that to one the side. The show goes on. Definitely the show goes on. Um, and how is it viewed by others what was the second part of your yeah so how do you think that what do you think it means for incoming generations of people who are trying to reach the heights that you've reached well i think what it will probably do is or hopefully do is what happened when i saw that youth theater shows that Mm. you kind of go oh my god he looks and sounds like me Mm. i can do that Mm. i can do that i can see how oh that's his pathway so it's possible 
that mm. I can do that. So I'm hoping that that would be the legacy or what's kind of gained from any kind of accolades that mm. I've garnered is that it points, it, it's a path for yeah. others to to follow or definitely look at, even if they decide, actually, I, that's his path, but mm. I might go a slightly different way, mm. but we know it's possible. Incredible. And obviously having received those accolades implies like a level of recognition that you're getting from the wider industry, um, which is an incredible kind of feat as a black man in this white dominated industry. Do you feel though that there is a place for blackness in theater or is that is that place still being fought for today? I think it's there. Yeah. I think it's ours. I don't, mm. <laughs> I just have it. <laughs> I just like. It's mine. It's mine. I'm here. I'm doing this play. Mm-hmm. This is it. It's black. It's, and it's us and we're doing it. Watch. I mean, mm-hmm. That's it for me. You know, I, I think I focus my energy that way around. Yeah. And I guess that's what works as well. Yeah. For, well, for me, it, it does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Incredible. And so speaking more on a practical a practical level for people who quite literally want to be sitting where you're sitting right now in 20 years or 30 years, however long, what practical steps would you give to someone who's starting off right now at the very beginning of their career or maybe doesn't even, hasn't even realized that they want to be a director? Maybe they're still an actor. (laughs) Right. Um, Well, I'd say go where your heart leads you. Mm -hmm. Be passionate about it. Mm. Be passionate about your craft. Mm -hmm. That's, That's the real thing, I think for me that's managed to hold on through any kind of bumpy roads it's, right. it's really about being passionate about how to do this mm-hmm. job um and like and be true to your heart yeah you know that's that's another one it's it's listen to that and mm. be guided by that and it's going to be hard mm-hmm. that's a given mm. i think it's it's going to be hard at some points but it's also going to be great yeah at some points you know and it's just <laughs> being able to yeah sit with both of mm. those things if you go where your where your artistic impulses is leading you yeah have you ever had instances where you felt like what made the most sense to do and what your heart was telling you to do in in your career was conflicting and how did you deal with those kinds of situations yeah that's why i said go with your heart i remember one scenario where i thought i you know i i really wanted to, i really wanted to do this thing but i said i was going to do that and mm. I, I just did what i said i was going to do yeah rather i should have done what my heart mm-hmm. wanted me to do and it would have yeah. paid off more if you had just well, done what your i don't heart know if it would have paid off more necessarily but i at least i would have done what my heart said yeah and mm. i think it's harder to argue you know if if i decided to go left but my heart said go left and it all went to it all died. Yeah. At least I did what my heart said. Well, I kind of went the other way. You my heart even, wasn't really yeah. in it. And it was just kind of okay. So it's like, why did you even do it? <laughs> you know? Mm. Yeah. And so for yourself specifically, looking back to where you were reading through those newspapers that mm. your dad was bringing home from work, mm. what um, what advice would you give to a younger self, a younger Michael, um, knowing that you're kind of going on the path that you're going now? I would say to the younger Michael, Everything works out in the end. Aww. Everything works out in the end. And like I just said, I would say, go with your heart. Mm-hmm. Go with your heart. And thirdly, I'd say, enjoy it all. Mm. The good and the bad. Mm. Have a laugh. Um, have fun with it. All of it. Yeah. Because they're both, you know, going to be there. It's going to be good and it's going to be mm-hmm. bad. Laugh all the way through. And have you have you done that? Have you laughed all the way through? I have. <laughs> we love to see it. <laughs> I, 
I maybe not, I might not have been laughing when it was bad. Yeah. <laughs> but I have definitely, I can look back now and go, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, enjoy all of it. I'm, I'm certainly, I think now learning to enjoy yeah. all of it. Incredible. Both parts of the, of the life. Yeah. How do you, how do you go about when you're in the thick of it? I mm-hmm. think sometimes it can be hard to have that perspective and think this is something that I'm going to look back on and really wish that I had been more present or more, mm. um, kind of just gone more with the flow. So how do you kind of ground yourself in those moments where, especially in stressful times? Mm. That I think takes a lot of practice. Mm. It's really, yeah, it's, it's one that I've learned over the years. Um, but it's interesting, like even now, you, it's just learning to get a bit of distance mm-hmm. or find the gap, as it were, again, really philosophical about it, in between whatever the stress is and whatever your reaction yeah. is. And in that bit there, if you can find the time in there <laughs> to breathe, Center yourself. then, mm. yeah, mm, that, that response then changes rather than responding definitely yeah. to whatever happened which leads to something else. Mm. It's finding the space in between. Don't be reactive, kind of be reflective first. If you can find the space. I think that's really good advice. Actually, I might take that home for myself. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What you just said made me think of something. So when when we're working kind of specifically in the creative industry, I think that the rules of corporate nine to fives or just nine to fives generally don't really apply Mm -hmm. when you're doing a job that is so intertwined with your passion and your calling and what you feel is your purpose on this earth. So how, how do you go about kind of navigating a work life balance when your work and your life, like Mm. the boundaries between those two are kind of blurred? It's a tough one. Mm. It's a tough one, especially if your work is your, you know, if is your passion. Yeah. It's a tough one. Um, But I think, as I go on, it's another one. <clears throat> I'm desperately trying to navigate a bit better because mm-hmm. I think at the beginning I was probably all at work. <laughs> I probably was like, yeah. You Workaholic. Know, I would like, yeah, keep going. Weekends still <laughs> working or, you know, at parties making, you know, networking. Mm. I think now um, it's slightly different. I, I, I think a work-life balance is important. Mm. Uh, but I don't want to lose the passion for the work. Yeah. But also, it's got to be for something. Mm. And if you've got like you know a life that you're going to go, yeah, I'm. Do- uh, this is great. But ultimately, I think this is the most important yeah. thing. You know, the one's life outside mm-hmm. that. Too balanced. That has to be taken care of. <laughs> yeah. So taking time away when you need to. Basically. Absolutely. <clears throat> especially now, I think you know, in, especially because we're all. You know, we've got phones, we're mm. constantly contactable, yeah. you know, on it's WhatsApp, things. Slack, email, mm-hmm. text. I mean, it's relentless. Yeah. So I think even more so nowadays we have to <clears throat> sorry, find a way, you know, to to have a balance mm-hmm. because that it is harder to sustain. Yeah. It requires know. a lot more intentionality, doesn't it, yeah. nowadays? Yeah. When yeah. your boss can contact you on your Absolutely. phone while you're absolutely. in bed <laughs> absolutely and i think even at talent we're, we're putting in kind of uh things that uh give you some kind of boundaries mm. you know don't email before nine in the morning don't right. email up you know after six yeah or weekends are usually sacrosanct unless we've got something on and Amazing. you know we're looking at well-being and mm. in the office and don't stay at your desk and have lunch and go out and walk. So there's yeah. lots of things that we're also realizing that this is important mm. working in our industry. As much as we're all passionate, um, we do also have to look after ourselves to be able to deliver 
the work that we we're, mm. we're doing. Yeah, I think that's important. I think especially working as a company that's dealing in such a humane medium, yeah. it's important that the way you interact with your employees is, you know, human, right? Yes. <laughs> Which yeah. a lot of a lot of workplaces don't get right. So yeah. it's great that you guys are doing it. Yeah. Um what looking back on your career and looking into the future mm-hmm. with your third eye, what um have the highlights been so far for you and what are you looking forward to in your years to come? highlights uh in terms of yeah professionally there's some been great highlights i've done some really fantastic shows mm. that i've been so happy and proud of and just you know watching the audience's reaction mm. as you kind of go wow look at them we've cast this magic spell you know mm. making the audience believe that everything they're watching is happening right now it's, <laughs> it's amazing we've done some like you know i think about moon and rainbow short and raisin mm. brilliant and even guys and dolls and Leah and running with lions most recently Amazing. in a you know a place where we all all gorgeous stuff. Um I'm really looking forward to recognition. This mm. is really I mean I'm just hearing bits of music as I walk past the rehearsal room. I'm thinking <laughs> wow, I can't wait to see how that's received. We've got a big show we're doing next year uh with some uh, a musical mm. with some um a, a Duke Ellington score. Wow. So I'm really looking forward Ooh. to seeing what that's going to yeah. be like. Yeah. That sounds incredible. Yeah. What's the plot of the musical? Can you reveal? Yeah. <laughs> Give us it's a It's Twelfth scoop. Night. It's Twelfth Night, basically. Okay. Set in, set in Harlem in the 40s. Amazing. Yeah. With the Duke yeah. Ellington score. With the Duke okay. Ellington score. I'll be front row at that yeah. point. <laughs> <laughs> and so then I think we're allowed to say that. Oh, my God. I hope we are allowed to say that. I'm hoping you know I've broken some protocol. I can't Because remember. this is pre-recorded. If you're not, you can. I'll let you know tomorrow. We'll bleep out this whole. Okay. <laughs> Just 30 seconds of blank noise. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And in your personal life, um, what have the highlights been, considering that I think work and life are very Mm. much one in the same, um, if you do it right, they coexist, right? What have the highlights been for you so far? Well, I think for me, kind of highlights going to be my my children, Mm. my two children. That's a good answer. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And just watching them grow and become, you know, young people in the world. And and also all the, you know, the kind of fresh perspectives they bring into us every day. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I think those, that's the highlights in a personal life. Oh. I'm watching them grow and go off into the world. Oh, amazing. It's, it's incredible that you've been able to achieve the heights that you have both creatively and kind of in your career, but also be able to maintain a really strong family unit, it sounds. So yeah. congratulations. I've been very lucky, though. Um, my partner <laughs> is doing a lot of this work as well. So <laughs> it's not all me being totally amazing. Shout out amazing. to them. Shout out to, them. Shout, out, shout out to my partner. You know, she's there doing a lot of that heavy lifting as well. So. Yeah, I can, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. Well, in that case, thank you so much for joining us today. I think that your story... Um, I know it's resonated with me personally. I think it's going to resonate with a lot of people. Um, what you've been able to achieve throughout your career has been nothing short of remarkable. So I hope that you pay yourself the homage and the flowers that you absolutely are deserving of. Um, and yeah, it's been a fantastic conversation. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the How Did I Get Here podcast. Our episodes are released on the third Wednesday of each month, so make sure to tune in and don't forget to follow us at BCA Heritage on all social media platforms for information on what we have on. If you liked our introduction and want to learn more, come visit our archives. Our reading room is open Wednesday to Friday and the first Saturday of every month. Check out the bottom of our website for the opening times and pay us a visit here in Brixton. And remember... 
Culture is resilience. Diversity is resilience. Keep going and don't stop until you get there.